0: Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, Holy Family Sunday gives us the opportunity to reflect on what makes a family holy. Now, I can give you lots of advice about how to make your families psychologically healthier, more functional, happier, etc. And there's nothing in the world wrong with any of that advice. In fact, our first reading for today from the book of Sirach gives a fair amount of it. Listen, he obeys his father brings comfort to his mother. Take care of your father when he's old. Even if his mind fail, be considerate of him, etc. There are a number of these nice practical bits of psychological advice that are very wise, very helpful. Our second reading, too, from Paul to the Colossians, trades in similar rhetoric. Listen, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Again, good advice, especially I would say that last bit of advice. Within a family context, to bear with one another. To forgive one another, it's so important because we know all of our flaws and failings. And if we hold grudges we can't forgive, our families fall apart. Okay, so far so good, so far so clear. But, But listen, any faithful person or person of no faith could subscribe to this advice. There's nothing particularly religious about it. All of it, I think, would make a family better, happier, more psychologically adjusted. But would it make that family holier? Hmm. I don't know. What precisely does that? What precisely makes a family holy? I think to answer that question, we got to dig a little bit deeper in the Bible. Let me refer to several places in the Bible that I think shed light on this problem. Look first at a very important figure for this time of year. I'm talking about St. Joseph, husband of Mary, the foster father of Jesus. The story of Joseph tells us a lot, I think, about what makes a family and family life holy. After the departure of the Magi, Joseph had a dream. Notice, first of all, how like his Old Testament namesake he is. He's a receiver and interpreter of dreams, like that Old Testament figure. But the angel in the dream told them, Take the child and his mother and flee into Egypt, for Herod was in pursuit of the newborn. Now keep in mind, this man, Joseph, had already been through an awful lot. He had endured the embarrassment of Mary's pregnancy, which undoubtedly caused tongues to wag and eyebrows to rise. Think of this unwed woman suddenly pregnant before she was married. Secondly, Joseph had navigated the dangerous journey to Bethlehem, endured the humiliation of not finding a proper place for the child to be born. And now he's being told something that could only have seemed ridiculous. This newborn baby was being sought by the king, How could that be? Why would the king be after this little innocent child? More to it, he's being commanded to travel, and not on some pleasure cruise, not on some pleasant vacation. To travel in that time to a foreign country over extremely dangerous roads where water and food were in short supply, where one was exposed to robbery and murder at every turn, and to bring on that journey a woman having just given birth, and a tiny newborn baby. I mean, it's hard enough to travel today with a a newborn baby. Imagine in those times, in those conditions. Any commonsensical person around him would have said that he was crazy even to be thinking about it, that he was in fact putting his family in great danger. I mean, from a purely psychological standpoint, this was crazy what Joseph was about to do. Yet, he went. Then, having arrived in Egypt, having stayed for several years, presumably, he, again, at the prompting of an angel in a dream, now gets up, uproots his family once more, takes them on another dangerous journey to the dangerous place from which they had fled. Hmm, again, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Again, from a psychological, ordinary standpoint, this seems like almost abusive toward his family. But here's the point I want to make. What Joseph did consistently was he obeyed God, even when it meant danger to his family. Even when it was anything but clear precisely what God had in mind. Listen how the Bible puts it. Joseph Rose and took the child and his mother by night. He rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. He departed for the region of Galilee. Time and again, at the prompting of the angel, Joseph goes. He moves. He knows, listen now, he knows precisely whom to obey. And he places the love undoubtedly which he had for Mary and the child. He places that love within the wider, broader, deeper context of his love for God. Joseph subordinated his compassion for his family to the will and purpose of God. He didn't stop loving Mary and the child, but he situated his love for them within the framework of his love for God. And that, my friends, is what made him holy. And what made his family life holy. The love of God came first. Now, with that Joseph story in mind, think of some other Old Testament antecedents. I mentioned his namesake, Joseph, already. Think of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son whom he loved with all his heart, the son of the promise. God had promised that he would raise up to Abraham generations of descendants. And the vehicle for the fulfillment of that promise was this Isaac, this impossible child of his old age. But then, confoundingly, God asked for Isaac in sacrifice. God commanded And Abraham obeyed. Huh. That's what made Abraham holy. And I know that can make him psychologically a little bit odd, strange, certainly by our standards. But the obedience to God is what made him holy. Or that wonderful story we hear a few times throughout the liturgical year. Hannah had prayed with all her soul. For a son, Hannah, who for many years languished without a child. She prayed and prayed. She went to the temple in Shiloh and she wept. And then God, in his mercy, gave her a son, Samuel. But then we hear that the moment the child was weaned, so he's just still an infant, Hannah gives him back to God. She journeys to the temple She carries with him a bowl to be sacrificed. And then she gives the child to Eli, the priest, who raises him. Did she love him? Of course. Was she psychologically attached to him? Obviously. But she loved and obeyed God first. That's what made her family holy. There's a demand higher than even the demand of the most intense loves that we feel here below. Now, think of the gospel for today. Why does the church give us this particular story of the presentation of Jesus in the temple? Ah, because that story has so many overtones and undertones. Yes, it was the custom of a first for, the, for a firstborn male to be brought to the temple to be presented to God. Think now for a first-century Jew of what that implied, overtones and undertones. Right away, his parents bring Jesus to the temple. That means God's house. They dedicate him to God, but more to it, the temple was the place of sacrifice. That's where animals were sacrificed unto God. Are they anticipating now in a kind of terrible way something that will happen many years later when Jesus will offer himself in that holy city of Jerusalem precisely as a sacrifice unto God and the willingness of Mary and Joseph to do this, the situation of their love for Jesus in the context of a higher love, hmm, that's what makes their family Holy. Think too how this is echoed a little bit later in Luke's gospel. When the twelve year old Christ now goes up with his parents to Jerusalem, to that same temple. They think he's just wandering with other members of the family. They've they've lost sight of him. In time they panic, they go back to Jerusalem, searching desperately for their son. And they find him where? In that temple in his father's house, that place of sacrifice. And when Mary says, don't, don't you know, don't you know we've been looking for you, how much anguish you've caused? He says in that, with, in that kind of devastating way, didn't you know I was to be about my father's business? Again, the love that Jesus undoubtedly had for Mary and Joseph, it's real, psychologically real, but it's situated now in the higher context of his love for his father. That's, again, what makes this family holy. A business, his father's business, that's more important, more pressing, more demanding than even the strongest family obligations. See, again, we tend to be kind of romantic about family life emphasizing its emotional ties. And the Bible, boy, is it a family book. has nothing against these family connections. But at the same time, the Bible is not romantic about families. It teaches that a family will paradoxically be stronger the more it is subordinated to God's will and purpose. Let me say that again. The family will be stronger the more each member of the family subordinates his or her love for the family to the greater love of God. I think I've shared with you before that great insight from Aristotle, the ancient philosopher. A friendship will endure in the measure that the two friends fall in love together for the family to the greater love of God. I think I've shared with you before that great insight from Aristotle, the ancient philosopher. A friendship will endure in the measure that the two friends fall in love together with a transcendent third. Falling in love not just with each other, but together with some great good that transcends them. Then they will stay together. In a very similar way now, a family's bonds will be greater. In the measure that together the family members fall in love with God, subordinate their love for each other, to their love for God. That, friends, is what makes a family holy. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.